Welcome back to the Archives podcast. I'm your host and producer, Mareva Lindo. Today we bring you part two of a six-part documentary series on the history of the Old Town School of Folk Music, told through the voices and songs of the people who were there. If you haven't yet listened to episode 13, the first part in this series, I highly recommend going back and catching up before listening any further. This episode shares the stories of the school's early years, when it was housed at the Immigrant State Bank Building at 333 West North Avenue. You'll hear archival music and recordings from Ella Jenkins, Big Bill Brunzi, and more, including many people who participated in our oral history partnership with StoryCorps this past year. I'll let Ted Johnson pick up where we left off. Opening night came. It was in 1957 in November. Nobody seems quite exactly sure which date in that <laughs> month it was, but it was a magical date. My recollection is it was November the 29th, I think it was. You might recognize the voice of co-founder Frank Hamilton from the last episode. And it was, uh, the articles of incorporation go into December 1st, but the school opening was on the 29th, I believe, of November in 1957. This is Jerry Armstrong, and we Armstrongs have been connected with the Old Town School of Folk Music since its inception. George played bagpipes for the opening night, and I sang a song and played guitar. We were friends with Wynne Strachey and Dawn Greening, the great Earth Mother. Wonderful woman. Here was opening night, and Dawn was there and with her big smile, and... uh, Big Bill Brunzi, this legendary blues musician. This is a song, for fact, I don't even know. I don't know who wrote it, and I didn't ask nobody when I first heard it. I just liked it, and I played it. This is one that, yeah, you can figure out what it is. Big Bill Brunzi was there, and he played uh, The Glory of Love. And I annotated it on the blackboard using a tablature system to show the, uh, to, as a demonstration for how we would proceed at the school pedagogically. It was a way to introduce the school to the public to, to, and to show what's, what, what it is that makes it different than anything else, really. And so one way of doing this was to have a little model lesson, a demonstration class, where Frank could demonstrate his unique method of teaching, because it really was something that was new. Frank had a way of getting people just comfortably started making music together as social music. So Frank got us all, we had this little group of us, five or six or seven of us, and Bill Brunsey played this fancy little riff. And then Frank, after having observed Bill's playing that, Frank would put these marks up on the blackboard and... Uh, that was the notation was part of what made this so special, and so he demonstrated it in about two minutes or five minutes. We were going through what Bill had done and what Frank had analyzed and notated, and we were all doing it together slowly and did it again and slowly. And after a few minutes, there we were. We had played uh, this fancy little riff that Bill did. It was 
quite an event. That's Studs Terkel. We knew it was something quite marvelous and exciting, but no one knew how long this particular school would last. And uh, I remember Fleming Brown was there, and uh, he sang and played. Uh, George and Jerry, of course, did. Well, Wynn and I, Wynn and I played the five-string banjo and accompanied Wynn. Who else was there? I think Ella might have been there, Ella Jenkins. Tell me, how did you feel when you came out the wilderness? How did you feel when you came out? Oh, tell me, how did you feel when you came out the wilderness? Leaning on the Lord, you can do that part too. My name is Ella L. Jenkins. The L is for Louise, but most people call me Ella. When the folk school first opened, we felt, well, maybe it's really here. For so long, we were hoping, you know, like, but we never thought it was going to really exist. And people were saying, they said, come down, bring your instruments. And so Ella came down with her little baritone ukulele. It wasn't so little. So we thought we'd come down. Jenny Clemens and I. Trouble in my mind, it's trouble in my mind. If trouble don't kill me, I reckon I'll live a long time, boy. Reckon I'll live a long time. Reckon I'll live a long time, boy. Reckon I'll live a long time. And we were actually the first two people who had uh, arrived on the scene. Yeah. She was a great, not only a great singer, but a good, very fine instrumentalist and guitar. <laughs> we had a lot of fun together. And just coming down to uh, be with the people at the school, hearing songs that you don't generally hear Frank Hamilton and I just got down there sometimes from one of the sessions and if he's leading a song leading a set, all of those of us who came down join in. He's he was very much like Pete Seeger. He just gotta start singing right away. And he played it in a way that that people wanted to hear him but also wanted to join in with him. thinking about it, and of course I was 10 in 1957. That's Jane Strachey Bradbury, daughter of co-founder Wynne Strachey. When he talked about Frank Hamilton, what I recalled was 
it was humorous because Frank, I guess, was kind of like the real ultimate absent-minded professor, probably because he was so brilliant. Uh, I think I remember hearing that he had to be pulled back from an open um, elevator <laughs> uh, door once because he just he was he was just not thinking about practical things. Wynn and I talked it over. He had a lot of wonderful ideas about how it would be a cultural contribution to Chicago. He knew Chicago probably better than anybody I knew, and he felt that it would be a catalyst to bring a lot of different kinds of communities together, which it did. (laughs) His dream was realized. We started incorporating in 1957. We were we had a pre-incorporation agreement with Wynn and I and a lady by the name of Gertrude Solker, S-O-L-T-K-E-R, who was an accountant. She had experience with the Studebaker Theater. She was a lovely lady. And the other thing was, I knew that our next-door neighbor, and I do mean next door, they were right in the same complex as our house, right next to us, was where Gertrude Solker lived. Gert and Dave were our next-door neighbors, and also good friends of my parents. And Gert was the person who did all the organizing for all the setup of the school, so I knew that too beforehand. She was, I think, brilliant at that kind of stuff. We brought in Dawn later as a, an official administrator. Dawn was our social catalyst, strong in introducing people to the school, making them feel at home, very much of a people person. The classes started, I think, a week following. We started off with me doing all the teaching. It was really crazy. I would go from one room to the next room, teaching a beginner class first and then the intermediary class second, and I would spend increments of time with each of the classes, kind of pulling it together. And then we would culminate with the different levels of classes. The culmination would be at the very end, the famous second half of the Old Town School, where all of these people would get together play the material that they'd been working on at their level together in mass. And it was kind of a crazy period because I realized, I, you know, I couldn't do all that. So we started to train teachers. One of our, some of our first teachers were Ted Johnson, uh, Ginny Clemens, I think Beverly Pincus was with us first. And we developed a teaching program. I sort of taught the teachers to teach, and then they took off on their own and developed their own styles of teaching. The original two teachers, of course, were Frank and then Wynn. And then I was the first additional teacher that they hired. By the way, another kid that used to appear there sometimes on Sundays, uh, these things, was this stringy-looking kid. I had him in my class for about one week, and his name was none other than Roger McGuinn, or Jim McGuinn, who is, of course, went to later fame in the birds. I'd like to say he was in my class. I think he lasted in my class for about one week and then shot up to a higher region. I had come to Chicago, and I already played guitar, but I decided I would like to advance my techniques and get a little social life going, so I wound up in Nate Lofton's class. 
you might remember the voices of Ted and Marsha Johnson from earlier. Here's more from their conversation about the school recorded this March. I met one of my very best friends in Nate Lofton's class. That's Joe Rosowski. She just passed away. Right. All these years we've been friends from that class. Moving forward, the school was about to have what it's some anniversary. Yeah. And you and Nate and Shirley Hirsch were going to be one of the acts at Orchestra Hall, right. where the big concert was going to be, and you guys were singing Sarah Jane. And Joe Rosowski, my good friend from class, and I used to sit and watch you guys rehearse. That's where you and I met, Teddy. Wow. What year was that? That would be about... We've been married 50 years, and Ted and I can never really remember exactly when we got married, but so, we think it was 1966. Yes. So it was sometime, a couple of years, maybe 64, 63. Out of that meeting, we, we started, I guess, we started what you call going together. We started singing together. She, she comes from a singing family. Ted and I were supposed to go out together one night ap after work, and he said, mm, I can't because I've got this gig at the, at the Drake. I said, I'll go do it with you. So I hopped into my skinny little black dress, and we were in this nice room with a piano, and I leaned up against the piano, and Ted played and sang, and that was our first gig together. And thank God, because you remember words. I'm not... I forget words. Yes, I got a lot of words. A hungry feeling Come o'er me stealing And the mice were creeping In my prison cell And the old dry I remember very well the old 333 North Avenue building. That's Rebecca Armstrong, daughter of George and Jerry Armstrong. I spoke with her over the summer in StoryCorps' booth at the Chicago Cultural Center downtown. Everything was up on the second floor. It was an old bank building, and they had the second floor. And the stairs were so steep for a little kid that it was always kind of an arduous adventure to get up there. But... One of my first memories is of being in the performance room on these hot summer nights. 
And of course there was no air conditioning, but all the windows would be flung open. And there were huge windows that looked out over the city and you would have the heat lightning. So you'd be listening to this music and looking out over the city that would be illuminated in these bursts of lightning. And the room, of course, was just bare boards. It was very simple, mm -hmm. you know, stucco walls, wood floors. And the chairs were all those old-fashioned wood, bent wood chairs with the round wooden seats and the bent wood backs. So when you sat on them, the minute the music started, everything vibrated. It was like you were inside of a musical instrument because it was all wood. Hmm. What I remember was the intensity of the physical sensations mm. of being part of this musical experience. So your family, uh, George Armstrong, your father, Jerry Armstrong, your mother, um, you and your sister, Jennifer, were at a time dubbed Chicago's first family of folk. My parents have been sort of dubbed with many nicknames. <laughs> the first family of folk, uh, the mom and pop. One of the appellations I really love was something that Norm Pellegrini said, that George Armstrong was the moral conscience of folk music in Chicago. And when I think back on that, my parents' marriage, you know, they met on WFMT, on the Midnight Special. My father had recently graduated from the University of Chicago and the Art Institute, and so he was connected in with the whole academic thing. Mm. My mother, Jerry Breen, was already in the folk music scene. The Virgin Mary had one son Pretty little baby Glory, hallelujah Glory be to the newborn king Mary, what you gonna name that? performing on the same bill as Fleming Brown and Winstrocky and things like that. So when they met, it was this interesting collaboration of this Irish folk music that my mother was doing. And my father's passion, not just for the bagpipes, but for the idea of music as a carrier of the deep soul of a culture. His father was first generation 
English. And I think what he picked up was this fascination and appreciation for music as something more than, you know, just the song of the day. That if mm -hmm. you listened carefully, you were picking up the entire cultural ethos. And so this idea of my dad being the moral conscience of folk music, I think, comes through very clearly in the kind of conversations he had with Studs Terkel over the years, in his program, The Wandering Folk Song on yeah. FMT, and in those early articles that he wrote for the original newsletters, right, mm. coming out of the Old Town School. Because he was trying to lay this foundation of the idea of folk music not as a springboard to a professional career, but as the carrier of a culture, of a, a soul of a people. And I think that comes through in a lot of what it was that he was bringing to this new exciting endeavor at, yeah. at the Old Town School of Folk Music. That was an important piece, and of course I yeah. didn't appreciate that as a child. But one of the things I did appreciate, which I think feeds directly into this idea, is that my parents were one of the few young folk families that had a house a house with a driveway, with multiple bedrooms, with a big backyard that you could pitch a tent, on a side street with free parking. And so this was a magnet for all of these struggling folkies, you know, who barely had two dimes to rub together. There wasn't a single month that we didn't have two, three, or four sets of house guests mm -hmm. staying for days at a time. So this really was like the original folk Airbnb. And... There was always a music party in the living room. Try to pass my troubles by. 
So these are my early experiences. That yeah. This is where folk music is actually at home, in the home and on the porch. And this is what underscores that sense of authenticity. That the kind of music we were doing was not music designed to be performed, sold, recorded, or presented. It was music to be shared because it was allowing something to come out about ourselves, about the community that we all inhabited together. Mm -hmm. So the fact that my mother was this wonderful hostess and we had so many of these music parties, we were, in a way, without being didactic. This was like the training ground. This is what folk music means. It means you come, you break bread together, you drink beer, and you share. Music was all about sharing, and everybody gets to participate. Hmm. There's no, well, please don't sing or please don't strum along. I want to just do my thing. No, 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 no. This is everybody's entitled because it belongs to all of us. So that, I feel, was one of the significant contributions that my parents brought. So it was both sort of a philosophical, Hmm. but also a practical support for that understanding of what folk music is all about. days, and now we, you know, 60, 61, 62, 63, there were a, a small cadre of people who were always coming over. The, the cadre of people that were always around were Frank Hamilton, Ted Johnson, Volusia. So there was this very strong nucleus mm. from the old town school, mm-hmm. you know, the core of the old town school, who were just in this close proximity. Yeah. But Volusia lived right down the street from us, oh, okay. bicycling distance away. I... Learned guitar from Volusia. I would just get on my bicycle and bicycle down there. She had multiple guitars at her home. And so I learned from her. I took lessons for a year and a half every Thursday afternoon after school. Well, what was neat for me is that I had um, an opportunity to, to start teaching some Brazilian folk songs. That's Volusia de Castro from a 1992 phone interview with Paul Tyler. You know, at, the t- at that time in Chicago, nobody even knew what the heck Brazil was, you know, let alone that the language is Portuguese, and this was before the, the understanding of Brazilian music through, well, primarily, you know, Stan Getz and that whole group. Uh, Brazilian folk music uh, was not known at all, but there was one song that had been recorded by Will Holt, with whom I had the pleasure of performing, and uh, it was called Lemon Tree. And I never forget, I heard that, and I thought, gosh, that's really funny. Um, My grandmother used to sing that melody to me, and it turns out, of course, that it was a Brazilian folk song uh, called Meu Limão, Meu Limoeiro, 
which I believe was the first thing that I taught to one of my classes at the Old Town School. You know, meu limão, meu limoeiro, meu pé de jacaranda, you know. And he, of course, made um, into the lemon tree, lemon tree, very pretty, and the lemon flower sweet. I, I realized that people had incredible receptivity to beautiful melodies, wherever they came from, you know. So I taught there, um, oh, golly, for 10 years. And, you know, when I was teaching there, I learned a heck of a lot. I mean, the uh, the genius of Frank Hamilton, you know, and the uh, uh, the love of Dawn Green, who ran the school like a tight ship, you know. And uh, I always like to tell the story that even though I'm Brazilian, that uh, one of my favorite beats that I learned and consequently and subsequently taught to people was the Calypso beat. And uh, it didn't come from me. I learned it from Ted Johnson. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, it was a real give and take and uh, just an incredible time, you know. I feel really very lucky to have participated in that. Well, by the time I started working with Volusia, she was pulling things out of the Old Town School book. I remember learning Sloop John B. Mm. from Volusia. Mm-hmm. And at first I was like, oh, God, I know this one. And it's so... It was like deadly dull. At the Old Town School, you were trying to let the beginners keep up. When Volusia did it, oh my God, it was like the interior rhythms. It was just succulent. It was sensual. It was Mm -hmm. fantastic. And I will never forget the first time that Volusia and Frank Hamilton performed together at the school. And of course, we were there because they'd been singing together with the groups in my mom's living room. But the first time they got on the stage, they did Train on the Island. It's this amazing kind of descanter medley. Volusia is overlaying a Brazilian song on top of the old train on the island. And Frank is standing on stage, this sort of lanky, skinny, pale-faced white guy, and Volusia is next to him, this dark-haired woman, passionate. And the two of them started to sing, and you could feel the energy shift. It was just this huge, like a fire pit had opened up. It was like the most exciting thing we had ever heard. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Like I have no friends Sometimes I feel Like I have no friends A long ways from home Sometimes I feel Like I'm almost gone 
sometimes I feel like I'm almost done. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost gone. A long ways from home. Above and beyond the fact that it was a, a unique way of teaching uh, music to groups of people that uh, would not have been able to afford it, or people that would come into classes like my, mine and, and they would say, oh, I'm tone deaf, and I would say, what? You know, if you can breathe, you can sing, you know. People would encourage each other, you know. I think there was very little competition and uh, a common goal, and I must say that, um, to me, the tone for that was always provided by... Uh, the integrity of Winstrocky and the uh, dedication of Don Greening as the two pioneers, you know, of, of the school. We were regulars at the Old Town School, and so I kind of knew everybody who was there. And there were some wonderful people. I don't even know if their names would be recorded. Not the big performers, not people like you know, Ray Tate and Ted Johnson. And There were people who would never, ever perform on a real stage but who were there all the time, who would always be there if you needed to stuff newsletters into envelopes, if people needed a ticket taker at the door, someone to wash the dishes afterwards. That sense of community was strengthened by the regularity of these people who were there because they loved the music. In that sense, I would say the Old Town School was the alternative to church. When church was well on its decline. This was an alternative because this supplied the same, the very same functions, a sense of community, a sense of passion and purpose beyond yourself, rituals, right? There was the Wednesday night folk dance with Nathan Sunday Sue Lofton, the Sunday, Sunday night sing, yeah. the discipline of having to learn an instrument, everything that you could want from a church you could get at the Old Town School. I don't know if everyone if this was ever spoken of openly. But, it, you know, since I am now 25 years into being a minister, I recognize these things. To really have that kind of passionate connection, there has to be a sense of transcendence. But you got that in the music. Every once in a while, a song comes up and everyone sings and the last note finishes and nobody breathes because it's so damn beautiful. It's like... Oh my God, I just tasted eternity. I felt it in my bones. So I think that's really what kept people coming. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Golden Ring? The Golden Ring slash a gathering of friends to make music. And again, this was music that started in the living room. And it had that quality to it. Because it was quality music. These were you know, high caliber people. Winstrocky, Howie, Eddie, my parents, Jennifer and myself. Steve White was there. I think, I think Ruthie sang on the, the first album too. But the blend was magical. And the songs that we did, there were all of these different moods that came through. But as a package, it felt different. As mm. a package, it was like, this is representational of folk music in America because it shows how we've drawn from all of these different traditions mm. to bring something new. This is the song that, that the first Golden Ring record ended with. This old world is full of sorrow 
Full of sickness, weak and sore, if you love your neighbor truly, love will come to you the more. We're all children of one father, we're all brothers and sisters too. This has been The Archives, and I hope you'll tune in for a new episode next Thursday. Tomorrow, or yesterday, depending on who you talk to, is the 60th anniversary of the school, and there are a ton of events happening this weekend in celebration. On Friday, December 1st, at the old 909 West Armitage location, I'm excited to host Come For To Sing, Old Town School in 1957, where I'll be sharing stories and songs from the school's beginnings. December 3rd, the all-new multimedia Old Town School history timeline will debut in the basement of 4544 North Lincoln Avenue. To learn more, go to oldtownschool.org 60th. That's 60th. I'd like to thank everyone who contributed their stories to today's podcast. Take a look at the episode notes for detailed information on all the recordings. And if you'd like to learn more about the Armstrong family featured in this episode, check out the first four episodes of this podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please support us by subscribing to the archives on iTunes, following us on Facebook, or sharing it with a friend. If you haven't already, we also ask that you review us on iTunes. It's a huge help to a growing podcast like this one. I'm your host, Mareva Lindo. Thank you for listening. Baby, now I win just a little, lose just a little. Sometime how to blues a little, but baby, that's the glory of love.